the Scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible, the texts, which are, again, brief, are here in the order of worship, if you'd like to follow there. And if you're visiting, do you want to say welcome again? It's great to have folks, especially for the first time, or faces that we have not seen. So thank you for being with us this morning. And we're in a series this fall, we're really getting toward the end of it, of the Ten Commandments. That just It's not to say that any one passage of the Bible is more important than another, but this is uh, an incredibly important passage. Yeah, it's important not only for Christianity, it's important for Judaism. Uh, it's just important as a, a bedrock of morality around the world. But one thing we've been trying to look at in this series is to tease out something that Jesus said about himself. He says, don't think, he says this at the beginning of his ministry, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, don't think that I showed up and now it's just a brand new deal and just, you know, wipe away everything you've heard about God or what God requires. He says, no, 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 I did not come to nullify that. I came to fulfill it. And we've said that, you know, for us, that means that as we're considering God's law, it means that we have to stop and say, okay, on the one hand, Jesus coming and doing what He did did not make any of this go away, but it even goes beyond that. It's not just that it didn't go away, but we've got to see how He is the fulfillment of it. These are not just stark little ethics bullet points. They're not just little uh, naked ethical requirements but they are actually ways to point us to Christ and see who He is. That's how Jesus really described all of the Word and the law of God. Now, let me say this before I read these passages. An old metaphor that I've mentioned in here before of the Christian life is that God's people are like little moons. And you think about it, the moon is just this big orb that emits no light of its own. And this is really a, a, a good time to bring this metaphor up because the last two nights you could walk outside. Even In fact, I was in the woods Friday night and could walk out without a flashlight because the moonlight was so bright. And the amazing thing is it's this giant round rock that gives off no light, light of, its, of its own. But what's it doing? It's reflecting... What does give off its own light, the sun, it's reflecting it so powerfully, it's like it's a light of its own. And Christians for a long time have said that is a metaphor of the Christian life. We, as, as flawed people, we don't have a light of our own that just em, that emits out of how we showed up. But God in His mercy can cause even the likes of us to reflect His light I mean, and reflect it really brightly. Now, before we read this text, here's what I want you to think about. This metaphor of being a moon can be great, and it can also bring you up short, because here's what I want you to think about before I read this text. All of us will reflect our Father. And what's sobering is that we will reflect our Father with our words Uh, whether our Father is God or not. And what does that mean? Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. God says on Mount Sinai, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that just even what we uh, mentioned will happen in our midst this morning. Uh, we, we probably at some level would be helped if, if all we came away with this morning is, I need to stop lying and I need to be more truthful. That, that might be better than nothing. And yet we would confess that even that might make us more self-righteous. We pray that this part of your law will show us how Jesus Christ fulfills the law and the prophets. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, I want you to picture something, and this this may not be something you have to work to picture. This may have happened to you. It might have happened recently. Picture that you have an acquaintance who is very, very socially awkward, painfully awkward socially. And let's say this person has been wanting to do something with you, like go eat lunch or go eat supper or go to a movie, go do something. And you have tried to figure out every polite, creative way to get out of this that you possibly can, and you have exhausted your options. And so the request comes again, and you just cannot bring yourself to say no. And so you get together with this person who is, again, what we would call socially handicapped, painfully awkward. So you get together and let's say you go have supper or you go to a movie and you come back and uh, either you say to yourself or maybe, you know, if you're married, say to your spouse, every five minutes felt like an hour. That was brutal. Now, let's say the next time that you bump into that person, the person says, I had the best time with you the other day. Did you? Now, now just that not-so-imaginary scenario gets at why reflection about this law of God has been so difficult over the centuries about what does it mean to be truthful because it's not always really clear-cut. You know, and here's a classic example. If you read anything, any Christian reflection on truthfulness, honesty, dishonesty, it always, always, always mentions this case. What do you do if it's the early 1940s and you live in Germany and you have Jews hiding in your attic? And the SS comes to the door and says, are there any Jews in this home? And I'm telling you, there are brilliant godly, thoughtful, compassionate, biblically uh, studied men and women who land on, you must say no. And some who say, you must say yes. And that's not a hypothetical scenario. That happened more than once. So it gets at, all right, this command is not just, okay, naughty, naughty, telling lies, go tell the truth. 
we need to think through this. And, I, and even as I've said that on the front end, I will not answer all the questions. Again, community groups, knock yourselves out. That's me abdicating responsibility, basically, just then. But I, but I do want to try to reflect on this, the time we have together. And the, the structure of this morning will be a lot like last week. Okay, so let's look at what is the nature of deceit. And then what's the heart of deceit? Why are we doing this? Because pretty, and, and this, this cuts even across religious lines, is that almost any world religion says, be truthful, don't be dishonest. But it is so hard. Okay, so why is that? So the nature of deceit, the heart of deceit, and then the redemption of deceit. Nature of deceit, the heart of deceit, the redemption of deceit. All right, the nature of deceit. First off, just here's the command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What's being required? Where our minds tend to go is just kind of day-to-day, garden-variety lies. But the command is more specific. And people that are way more knowledgeable than me about biblical Hebrew will say that the vocabulary of that short command is very much the vocabulary of the courtroom, uh, of, of legal matters. So we need to take the command on its own terms, not rush to what we want to talk about. The first prohibition would be something along the lines of lying on the stand, giving false testimony, falsifying a legal document, uh, fudging somehow on an affidavit. That is strictly addressed in this command. Uh, A little bit more broadly, legally, it would be things like breach of contract. And you know, usually with a contract, uh, there's not just one signature, but there may be multiple signatures who are serving as what? They are serving as, it's a word from the command, witnesses. Breach of contract, breaking a lease where we gave our word. And another one, that is not always relating to being in a courtroom, but is legal in its nature, is the breaking of marriage vows. Because in our culture, for the Christian, a marriage is both religious and it's civil. When I, you know, even up here, when I stand and do a wedding, toward the end of it, I'll say something that ministers have said for a long time, by the laws, uh, by the authority entrusted to me, by the state or by the laws of the state. And what we're saying is this. This was simultaneously a religious thing that just happened and a civil thing, a legal thing that just happened in the laws of the state. When the couple walked in, they're single. When they walked out, in the eyes of the courts, they're married. To break vows is to bear false witness. Now, those are more sort of legal focus. If you, if you broaden it a little bit, what does it mean to bear false witness? Well, the obvious one would be just lying. Now, that covers a lot of ground. Martin Luther said there's three kinds of lies, and I'm going to use this as, as sort of rubrics. Uh, there's humorous lies, helpful lies, and harmful lies. All right, and don't already get excited about helpful lies. I know I can just see you already going, excellent. Everything is proceeding according to plan. All right, hear me out on this. Humorous lies is just the fact that there is a time and a place to tell something that didn't actually happen, a joke, 
and uh, you know, just the it's well, you know, Woody Allen at the end of one of his movies, he talks about that a guy goes into a psychologist's office and he says, uh, "Doc, you've got to help me. I've got a brother that thinks he's a chicken." And the psychologist says, well, what have you done for him? And the guy says, nothing. The psychologist says, why not? And he says, well, we needed the eggs. Okay, now we all know that that never happened. You know, it's the, a gorilla walks into a bar, kind of, th- that never happened. We covered that. All right. Helpful lies. Now, what would that be? This is where the big debate is, at least one of the parts of the big debate in in. Christian reflection about truthfulness, about honesty and dishonesty. And let me throw out two texts that that are very relevant to the discussion. They're both in the Old Testament. One is in the first chapter of Exodus. This is really amazing. Exodus starts out, it's setting the stage for God's people coming out of Egypt when they were slaves. And it's talking about that For a while, the pharaohs were favorable to Israel. In fact, in Genesis, extremely favorable. But time changed and a new pharaoh came up who was no friend of Israel. And and looks around and sees that these Israelites, they have just multiplied like crazy. They will take us over if we're not careful. And so this pharaoh gives an edict that baby Israelite boys are to be killed. It's a terrible order, and, and it's amazing because this is not the, it's not the only time that happens in the Bible, and these stories are connected. And so, this is the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, guys, I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not, but we're talking, this is the most powerful man on earth. He says, to all Israelite midwives, you kill children of this certain age. Now, this is awesome. There were two Israelite midwives named Shifra and Pua. And they said, um, no. Now you talk about brave defiance. Two little Israelite women that when they showed up and Israelite women were giving birth, they brought these babies into the world. Well, he got back to Pharaoh. He brings them up before him and says, what's the deal? And they say to him, well, you know, Israelite women aren't like Egyptian women. Egyptian women, they take a long time to give birth. But by the time we've even heard that the baby's coming, we show up, baby's already there. Strong Israelite women. Lie. Total lie. They give give birth like all other moms. And the narrative is careful to say that God looked with favor upon what they did and even showed that favor by blessing them with large families. That he liked what they did when they lied. Another example, this one's in some ways even more tricky. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua records when God's people cross the Jordan River out of the wilderness and they start occupying the promised land. One of the places they go into is Jericho. They send some spies ahead into Jericho to scope it out. And these spies realize they're about to be caught and they are protected by a prostitute named Rahab. And when some people come and say, hey, weren't weren't those Israelite spies with you? What's the story on that? She kind of does the Bugs Bunny, you know. They went that way, Doc. And so send someone off on a red herring, and these Israelite spies go back home safe as kittens. And she is commended not only once, but twice in the New Testament, Hebrews and James, for what she did. 
when she lied. Now, it seems that what Scripture is saying is that a helpful lie... Sounds weird to say it that way from the pulpit. A helpful lie is a misrepresentation to protect the life of one's neighbors. And what I would understand that to mean would be, let's go back to Germany in the early 40s. If the SS comes to your door and you're hiding Jews in the attic and they say, are there Jews in this home? Not the ideal answer, but the compassionate answer is no. But let me say this, just because we're, it's easy for us to take helpful and turn it in on ourselves. Let's say, a, and this happened, let's say a pastor is arrested and interrogated by the SS and he is asked, who ultimately is authoritative for the German church? The Fuhrer or someone else? The correct answer is Jesus Christ. And then if a gun is put to your head and the question is asked again, the correct answer is Jesus Christ. Now, it's one thing to lie for oneself. It is another thing to protect the lives of others. That even happens in war. There's a deceit that can save lives. What's the third kind? Humorous, helpful, harmful. Harmful is painting with a broad brush. It's the rest of the lies. It's the rest of the lies. It's the, um, hey, that thing I asked you to get done, is it done? And it's not done. It's the, yes, I did that. Of course I did that. Um, Children who still live uh, in your parents' home, when a parent asks about, did you do such and such that I asked you not to? that if you did it, that you look at a mom or dad and say, no, I did not do that. That's a harmful lie. And it even expands into bigger circles. Remember, this second section of the Ten Commandments is love of neighbor. We talked about the first commands, our love of God. Second part, love of neighbor. This command has everything to do with being a community with those around you. And Christians for centuries have said part of what's prohibited in this commandment are things like slander and gossip. Because positively what this command is to do is to protect the well-being and the name of your neighbor. So what would the opposite be? It would be to undermine and attack the name, to dishonor the name of your neighbor. And there's multiple ways to do that. A big biblical theme is that when something important is on the table, it needs to be something that's established by two or three witnesses. This came up even with us nominating officers. We don't want to just have, uh, we don't want to have names where only one person said, yeah, I think you should be an elder. I think you should be a deacon. We want several people to recognize that because it's important. It needs to be established by multiple people. Gossip as far as it feeling true, is typically not driven by two or three witnesses. It typically gets its fuel from one person's perception. And then it's disseminated. And slander can work the same way. Now, we could be here all day talking about ways to be deceitful. What is driving this? 
What's at the heart of deceit? If we know that we don't want people lying about us, and if we know that we don't want to be somebody that's known as a big fat liar, then why is it so hard to tell the truth when we need to tell the truth? There's a psalm. It's Psalm 15. And some people have called this psalm the question and answer psalm. Because there's a question at the beginning and the rest of the psalm is an answer. And the question at the beginning is, Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And it's a picture of Jerusalem being like a hill. And there's God's tabernacle and then the temple up in Jerusalem. And it's the psalmist saying, God, I don't want to just go there. What I want is to live with you. But the question is, who can live with you? You're God. So the rest of the psalm is the answer. And it's interesting that more than once it answers in terms of being honest. It's the man who speaks the truth to his neighbor. It's the person who doesn't accept a bribe. It's someone who doesn't slander. But listen to this, because this is really important. It says it's the person who speaks the truth to his own hurt or swears to his own hurt. And it means this. It's someone who gives his or her word and then when a situation presents itself where if you're going to keep your word, it means that you're going to miss out on something or maybe you're going to be attacked or maybe you're going to lose something if you're going to keep what you say. And it says the answer to who can live up there is the person who can swear to his own hurt. The heart of deceit, among other things, is that lying is a way to avoid suffering. Lying is a way to avoid suffering. In all kinds of different forms, for instance, it can be a way, I think this is a huge one, to avoid punishment. This can be lying to a teacher, lying to a parent, lying to an employer, lying to the cops. Um, this is the, hey, uh, did you get that done? This is from a supervisor, from a boss. Did you get that done? Of course I did. Nope, I didn't. Why am I saying I did? I don't want to be punished. Classic, classic biblical example of this is Peter. Lord, I would never deny you. I would never run away from you. I'll be killed before I'll run away from you standing around a fire and a slave girl, about as low on the sociological ladder as you can get. Hey, you know him. Don't you know him? Nope, I do not know him. The fear of trouble. The fear of punishment. Peter modeled that. And not that we need a lot of modeling because we know how to do it. Fear of commitment. You know, commitment to someone or something will bring suffering because it will become inconvenient to be committed. Let me give you one example. We talked about marriage vows. What about vows of church membership? I feel, I feel as a pastor, in some ways, like I'm walking such a tightrope when I talk about this. And the reason I feel that is because, on the one hand, we don't ever want the vows that our members take to become a bat that we hit people with. You know, something I appreciated about Brian Hamby when he was giving this announcement about giving, he was very mindful that I I want this to be encouraging. I don't want it to sound like a scolding. And And I say, hear, hear, that's not what we want. 
But sometimes men and women join our church and they stand up here and take... I mean, you have to do this to join. And they take vows. Here's one. I will support the church in its worship and work to the best of my ability. And it is terribly encouraging to see men and women take that on. And sometimes to surpass what you could have hoped for. And sometimes men and women who say those words may disappear for months. And how can we be a community with one another if we sometimes disappear for months? That's a kind of lying. Why would someone disappear? Because you know what? To commit to a group of people and not only to show up on a Sunday, but to really throw your life in with others, other people who will rub you the wrong way, and a pastor who can rub you the wrong way, and a community group that can rub you the wrong way, and to be disappointed by things that happen, that can be a form of suffering. And a way to avoid that suffering can be to say, absolutely, I'll be committed to that, and then not be. Um, how about this? How about exclusion? Being left out, being, being left out of the inner ring is a form of suffering. Um, you know, I, I've, I've joked with groups that one of these days I'm going to preach a series called Biblical Texts That I Hate. And, you know, that sounds terrible, but just to say words from Scripture that are so hard that I just cannot bring myself to like them. One that will definitely be in that series, if I ever do it, is, called, is, is when Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you. Because that's how they talked about the false prophets. And so much of our lives is trying to get everyone to like us. And if that requires throwing someone under the bus so that I can sort of shine by contrast, I'll do it. Because why? What is the heart of it? I don't want to be out. I want to be in. Out is where you suffer. In is where you enjoy. Now again, we could give example after example, but it's a way to avoid suffering. And if you want a picture of how much we want this, and this is, guys, this is all of us. If you want a picture of how much we we want this, think about this. Remember the metaphor at the beginning? We're all little moons. And we're reflecting something. And I said that you, you will reflect your father, whether it's God or someone else. What does that mean? In John chapter 8, Jesus really got into it with the Pharisees. And he finally said this in John chapter 8. Do you know why you're trying to kill me? Because he knew what the deal was. You're not just trying to undermine my ministry. You are trying to kill me. You know why you're trying to kill me? Because you belong to your father. And he's been a murderer from the beginning. And you tell lies. Because you're like your dad. And he's been lying from the beginning. And, you, and he finally explicitly says it. He's talking about the devil. And just so... We understand we're not just throwing rocks at the Pharisees. I don't know any Pharisees. Well, I don't know any first century Pharisees. We want 
to avoid suffering so badly that we will, through our words, say, I'll, I'll, I'll be a moon for the devil for a little bit. I'll do that. And the ugliness is, think about this. Old Testament, New Testament both say that God's people are His witnesses. And that's the language of that command, witnesses. And that's a legal thing. It means you are testifying to something. What are God's people testifying to? What He's like and what He's done. When a moon is reflecting what He's like, it means we speak the truth. And even if we say a hard thing, we speak it in love. We don't say hard things to take people out at the knees. If God was like that, we would not be standing. If God were cruel, we'd know it. But that He'll speak the truth in love to bless, to heal. Lord of the Rings, the hands of the King are for healing. But He'll do it in love. That's why when you open your... Think about this. When you open your Bible to read it, you're opening a book that'll say things like, Ah, you're evil. You're deceitful. Your heart is desperately wicked. Beyond what anybody can picture. Who can fix it? That's the little bio that we find about ourselves in the Bible. But the reason you don't have to have a knot in your stomach when you open the Bible to read it is because it's the book that's coming from a God who is saying, I'm telling you this so the good news will be good. I'm telling you this so you'll know what the truth is. And I'm not going to play games with you, and you don't have to play games. This is how it actually is, and redemption speaks into how it actually is, and it's awesome. And I'm telling you the truth. So what is the redemption of deceit? It's this. He sends His own Son who comes into the world, and of all the different ways that Jesus describes Himself, one of the ways He says is, I am the truth. He doesn't just say that I'm offering you the truth, guys. He says, I am the truth. And one of the ways that He's described after His resurrection... My beard is itching me as I'm preaching. I'm sorry. One of the ways... And that's the truth. One of the ways that He's described later in the New Testament... And it's a quote from the Old Testament. It says that the Messiah, no deceit was found in His mouth. And you know who writes that in the New Testament? Peter. And man, that must have been poignant. That when push came to shove, I lied. Not to face the music. But when push came to shove and he's arrested, and he's taken through a kangaroo court, and he's taken to that hill, that other hill, not the good hill, where we want to dwell. He's taken to the awful hill. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when he is taken to that hill, I want you to think about this. It's gross that when the Romans scourged him with a lash that has pieces of bone and metal, and it just opened up his back, why is God letting a Roman soldier be so cruel to his son? I'm so glad I never saw that. I don't ever want to know what that looks like. Why is he letting a Roman soldier rear back and drive spikes into his son? Why is his son up on the cross screaming? Because it's awful. Why is it so awful? 
Because God says things like in Proverbs 6, that they're things that His soul hates. They're things that He loathes. And of all the things He could have listed, one of the things He lists is a lying tongue. That because God is perfect, not a bully, but perfect, it is as if He is saying, do you know why I hate it, married person, when you break your marriage vows? It's not just because, oh, this undermines family values. It's because marriage comes from me. That I am the great bridegroom. And what you are doing is you are being a witness to the world that I am a bridegroom who will make you promises and lie. And I am not that way. And I hate it when you do that. And I hate it when you hurt your spouse. I hate it. I hate it when you hurt your children through breaking your vows. I hate it. The scourging and the mockery and the being spit on and dragged through the streets and made fun of and spiked to a cross and finally saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's God saying, I hate deceit. It comes from the devil. It does not come from me. And by the way, the only way they got him up on that cross was false witnesses. Because his life was so airtight, that was the only way it was going to work. And you know what's amazing? Is that when he is up there, this is unbelievable. He not only bears for us what God thinks of our deceit, whether it is garden variety or white lie or egregious, if we've lied on the witness stand or broken vows, whatever. That when that Roman centurion is scourging Jesus, what he's hitting is our lies. When the Roman centurion just brings that hammer back, what he's hitting is our lies. When God's wrath falls on His Son, He's hitting our lies. But you know what? When Jesus says it's finished, it's finished. If you are in Christ, unbelievable. There may be consequences in this, in this life for lack of honesty, but as far as divine justice that we deserve, you will never bear it. Someone loved you so much that they walked into a room of false witnesses and let it unfold. And there's only one man that ever lived out Psalm 15. Who can live on that hill? Who can live in the tabernacle? Who can live with you, God? Jesus. And God in His mercy gives to His people the life of Jesus. That God looks upon you as if you never, ever did anything but speak the truth to your neighbor. You never slandered. You swore to your own hurt. And I want to end with this. That is the great remedy of deceit. But you know what's amazing? Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're really into stuff, you'll talk about stuff. If you're really into whoever you're in love with, you'll talk about who you're in love with. If you're really into work and to-do lists, you'll talk about work and to-do lists. But if it grabs us that, you know what? I can end this stupid PR campaign about how awesome I am because I'm not. I am, I am 
the pinnacle of creation. I bear God's image. But as far as merit, there is none. I can suffer because God will only bring suffering into my life that He wants to beautify me. I don't have to avoid it. He'll protect me. I don't have to manufacture my own protection. And I I would say this to you. If that grabs your heart, that means... And I haven't answered all the questions about, you know, do I look fat in this dress? What do you do at that moment? We haven't answered all those questions. But if these things grab your heart, it can at least do this. It can free us to say, I'm the kind of person who will say one thing and do another. And this must change. That's the old me. I can put this off. I'll never do it perfectly, but I can keep church membership vows. I can keep marriage vows. I can keep leases or contracts. I can speak the truth to my neighbor. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us. This generates so many questions. Maybe um, things at work that that we're thinking through ethically about how to handle, uh, how not to uh, how not to be dishonest, but maybe not knowing what that looks like. Or maybe we have a friend or a colleague who's very fragile. And we wrestle with how to be completely honest with him or her. What to say, what not to say. Uh, we, we open our hands and say, help us, help us. At home and at work, in our neighborhood, in our friendships, help us. But we ask, O oh Lord, that we would reflect one who always tells us the truth. And who has spoken the truth in love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.